and welcome back to Bottle of Red after a small hiatus. I'm joined today by only half of the Rosses, but in the absence of Mr. Dickey, Ross Garner and I are joined by author R.E. Vance, the author of the Paradise Lot novels. Although, having said that, R.E. Vance is not your real name, Rami. Why did you choose to go with a pseudonym? Well, uh, because actually I come from a, a traditional publishing background. And so, you know, the two worlds don't really mix, self-publishing and traditional publishing. And it kind of was one of those situations where I felt like I didn't want to excuse my French, but shit where I eat, so to speak. And so I thought, well, I'll publish under a pseudonym um, and just kind of go from there. In hindsight, kind of regret that. I think I probably will come out sooner or later. Um, the problem is, is I've gathered a fair bit of a following under Ari Vance, so it might just be easier to change my real name to Ari Vance <laughs> than go the other way, so we'll see. Can, can, can you explain what the issue was with uh, using your real name for self-publishing? Why, why is it, uh, you use the phrase shit where you eat? Why is that a problem? So if you uh, work in traditional publishing, and especially if you deal with the big five, and you talk about the pros of self-publishing, just look in the average, you know, traditional publisher, editor, publisher, or marketer, and you'll just see utter cringing. But the reality is, is that that attitude is changing now because self-publishing is actually becoming the slush pile. Uh -huh. So about, you know, let's say about 10 years ago, the system would be that you'd apply to an agent, an agent would accept one out of 10, oh, sorry, one out of 100 books. And then that agent would in turn try to get you with a publisher, which in turn was about successful about one out of a hundred manuscripts. Like, I don't know the actual stats, but the point is, is that they were accepting a fraction of the manuscripts. And this was called the slush pile, right? So all the rejected manuscripts was called the flush, uh, slush pile. So now self-publishing has become the slush pile. Because what happens is now traditional publishers are cluing in that self-published authors know how to market themselves, some of them do, know how to market themselves, can curate good content or write good content and get feedback from uh, you know, an interactive audience and adjust accordingly. And they'll look at the sales metrics on Amazon and iBooks and so on and so forth. And then they'll say, you know, this guy's worth picking up and that guy's worth picking up. And it's really funny because uh, traditional publishers have actually gone e even a little bit further because some self-publishers are so good at selling themselves that uh, traditional publishers won't really look at you unless you have a, a tribe of like 10,000 plus people, if not more, right? And so, so I, I knew that if I were to go in, even with kind of my contacts in the industry, I wouldn't be giving any real support in the marketing or anything like that, I kind of be, they'd publish me and then say, "Good luck, go off and do it on you're, your own." You're speaking about traditional publishing. Traditional publishing. Yeah. So I figured I'd go to self-publishing route, prove myself, and then perhaps go to traditional publishing. Although, the more successful you become in self-publishing, the less tempting traditional publishing becomes. Well, yeah, I saw, I, I read um, uh, a self-published author a while back who um, had been wildly successful. And uh, he'd been approached by a publishing company, and it, what his his question then was, "What could you do for me that I haven't done for myself?" And yeah. they couldn't answer it, and so he said, "Well, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> I'll carry on." You're looking for the same thing that businesses are looking for when they bring in investors. So you're looking for funding to bring you to the next level to scale up your operation, basically. Yeah. And if they're not going to invest in that manner, then what's the point? Well, I mean, if you look at something like Fifty Shades of Grey, 
um, we talk about Fifty Shades of Grey in every podcast. Oh, it really? always comes back. <laughs> My God, not, right. not when I'm here. <laughs> if you if you examine the world of mummy porn, um, you you understand that like she I forget her name now. El James is it? That's I think right. so. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So she sold tens of thousands of copies before she went into traditional publishing. But make no mistake, she would not have sold the millions of copies without kind of having the backing of one of the big five who really know what they're doing. But the problem is is that they know they're only willing to, you know, put their whole machine behind a guaranteed investment. Sure. And so so to get that kind of success, uh, yeah, I mean, that's very difficult to achieve. Even the self-published authors who are just knocking it out of the park, they're not re- achieving her level of success. But still, she plateaued, uh, arguably, I mean, I suppose, you know, we don't know for a fact, but arguably she plateaued and the traditional five took it to the next level. Sure. Oh, what fun. also happened with E.L. James, though, sorry, Justin, I interrupted. But she, That's right. <laughs> carry on, I'm used to it. But she had, like, the Trump effect where she got tons of free media just because it became the story that this self-published, you know, mummy porn had become a sensation. Yeah. Can I just applaud the fact that you've just got Donald Trump and mummy porn into the same sentence? <laughs> 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 we should start having a contest for those kind of <laughs> one point for you. <laughs> yeah, but I, something I think is interesting though there is: um, do you think that do you think that as a result of the rise in particularly eBooks, um, but but also the, the the possibility of self-publishing, and and the, and the, what has been a decline in certainly hard copy sales do you think that traditional publishers have become even more risk averse than they already were do you think they're even less likely to take a gamble on somebody unless they've already proven themselves or have a celebrity in some other field that that brings a following with them that's a tough question to answer only because the publishing industry is built by you know larger than life personalities and so it really becomes a case-by-case scenario as to which publishing house you're talking about how much they believe in your story because unlike you know other industries where hard numbers can really tell you the direction it's going to go books especially fiction is a largely emotional field and so if you have that publisher who has the right kind of contacts and the right kind of sway and he just loves your book, then, or she, you know, then they can turn that into something huge with no following or, or a very small following. And it, it really becomes a case of uh, right place, right time. But part of the reason why I think that you're absolutely right is because, because of e-publishing, because of self-publishing, and because of a lot of other constraints um, on the industry, uh, profit margins are much less so yeah of course they want the big hits but if they believe in you they will take that risk getting them to believe in you though that's a whole other conversation that's a whole, that requires several bottles of wine in the exact <laughs> right setting so. So, so the topic of this podcast is actually not traditional publishing well, I was, I was going to say we've gone completely off the topic we have a little bit Wait, well, we? If, if we could talk about your, your name I think oh, was okay. still the original question. Which yes, we're eight minutes in, we haven't answered yet. So, <laughs> well, so, so what, I mean, what is your name? Rami Habib. 
So part part of the answer is. So you're offici- you're officially outing yourself uh, on our podcast. Myself. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> no, it, it, uh, part of it was because I didn't because you know like a lot of my work comes from traditional publishing, and I didn't want to you know as I said shit where I eat. The other part was that I have a very Arab name because I am Egyptian in fact or half Egyptian half American I'm constantly at war with myself <laughs> and, uh, and um, the problem the problem with my name and what I write is that I didn't want it to get mixed up because I'm literally writing a story in which all the gods have abandoned us and you know let's I didn't want the whole religion and Arabness and all that to be mingled in because really I just wanted to write a fun kick-ass urban fantasy and the truth be told, the, the actual whole premise of Paradise Law is that all the gods left, um, refu- forcing their denizens to be refugees on Earth. So angels, Valkyrie, Minotaurs, you know, you name it, Windigos, they're all, you know, refugees on Earth. The inspiration comes from my wife, who for a year, she and I lived in southern Turkey, and she, where she was working with Syrian refugees. And it was there that I met through her some of the best people I've ever met or angels and some of the absolute worst people I've ever met so the demons and it just that they shared one common trait of being forced out of their home suddenly with no promise to ever return and that's kind of where the premise of Paradise Law came and so I just you know again I just didn't want my Arab name to confuse what I was trying to write is it impossible to to write about uh, religion in any form with an Arabic name without it coming across as some sort of criticism of Islam yeah I I I really you know I I really think that that's an issue that can be a very big issue especially what I'm writing like uh, one of my characters is actually the Archangel Michael he's uh, the police chief of Paradise Lot um, less satirical than you'd think if you actually read the books. <laughs> um, and that's that's a big no-no in Egypt where I come from. You can get in real trouble for having that kind of depiction of, you know, a, a central figure in the Islamic faith. So, absolutely. Uh, Justin, do you want to go on to what your question was going to be before I interrupt? Yeah, I thought that was a much more interesting topic than I think my next question is. But what we were going to talk about um, is, uh, and it, it's tied in with the whole uh, self-publishing, difficult getting published kind of thing, is that um, one of the things you do around me is you do a lot of coaching of new writers um, yeah. and developing writers. Um, we uh, previously did a podcast on how to deal with feedback and how to use feedback. I'm interested in knowing from the other side um, your experiences of how you go about giving good feedback, and what are the what are the most common what are the, what's the most common feedback you have to give to new writers? What are the most common mistakes they make? Can I take a step back one more time, sorry, and and ask what a writing coach does, just to, to kind of lay some groundwork to what your position is and what your relationship is with your clients? Okay, so uh, what I what essentially I do first of all, I mostly work it with nonfiction. And I mostly work with people who are writing a, um, a book, and by book we mean around 30,000 words, and as an effort to market their business. So, for example, I worked with a, you know, quite a successful podcaster who wanted to write a book on his, um, on his podcast uh, as a, as a, essentially as a marketing tool, and he gives away this book for free to subscribers, to people, listeners and whatnot. And so, the most common mistake that, uh, well, 
This is gonna sound really cheesy. And I really do apologize for this. And I'm even cringing just at the thought of saying it. But the most common problem or obstacle to overcome is simply convincing a person that they can do it. All right, you know, there is this element of like, ooh, I'm writing a book and it's so hard. But, but they've, they've come to you though, right? Yeah. So they must have some degree of, uh, what, what do you think that they're, they come to you optimistic that they might at some point be able to do it? Yeah, but their, their expectations as to how difficult and how much time it will take is often uh, skewed. So, so they, they think it'll be easier than it's actually going to be. No, they think it's going to be harder oh, okay. than it actually is going okay. to be. Right. But so on the one hand, actually get, building the book, you know, developing the outline. Follow, this is nonfiction, right? Sure. It, following it, writing it, getting all the points out and all that is actually not as difficult as they have it in their head because these people are experts in their fields, right? It's just a matter of putting it down. And in fact, a lot of their contents pre-written based on the blogs that they've been writing, the emails that they've been writing, the other marketing material that they've been doing, the podcasts that they've been doing, <laughs> right? A lot of them have workshops and whatnot. Um, so that's actually probably one of the bigger challenges is like, guys, stop you know, I, I often, this is probably weird, but I often think of the a dog that circles a carpet seven times. Yeah. It's like, just, just sit, the, <laughs> sit the hell down, it's done. <laughs> just sit down and do it, you know? And so that's what it is, right? For fiction, however, yep. it's the exact opposite problem. Everyone thinks that they got a gr an idea and they're gonna be the next, you know, E.L. James. Yeah, E.L. James, right, exactly. Donald Trump, another <laughs> one of the great fiction writers of our time. And oh, the most... No, I'm, I'm not giving you Donald Trump in great in the same sentence, <laughs> definitely not. Well, actually, I mean, you, pro you know this probably uh, very well. I would say the most common mistake that new fiction writers make is they confuse premise and plot. Or they confuse premise for plot, rather. And you know what I did, the description I gave of Paradise Lot, that's premise. Yep. There's no plot in there whatsoever. Sure. But a lot of people, especially newbie writers, will think of it as plot. Can, can you give the plot of, of Paradise Lot? Well, Not yeah. without giving away the story, which is kind of pointless, because then <laughs> no. who's going to read the book? <laughs> okay, no, but here, here's an interesting way to look at it, right? So, so here's another common mistake that first-time fiction writers make, is, is they think it's fiction, so I must embrace my inner soul and express myself. You know, and, and the reality is, is that there are fundamentals to constructing fiction, to writing fiction. And if you do not understand these fundamentals, then you have no business writing fiction. You need to understand the basics. And case in point, Picasso, right? Picasso broke every rule there was in painting. But if you look at his early stuff, he understood form, he understood color, he understood all the basic elements of construction. But people think with writing that ah, I don't need to do that. Like I don't need to study the basics to do it. And so, and, the, and, and, I, and I have a great idea, so therefore I'm entitled to write it. And that's probably the biggest challenge is, or the biggest feedback, criticism that I have to give early on is establishing if they do understand the fundamentals. And if they don't, opening them up to the position. So what, what do you mean by fundamentals? So what's the... Uh, we, we interrupt a lot on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the basic construction of a scene? Mm -hmm. 
how does um, what is a follow-up to a scene because you shouldn't follow up a scene with another scene you need to give the characters a chance to digest what has happened consider their options and then go on to the next scene right so it feeds into itself right even I mean I've, I've had several fiction students uh, say to me come up to me with zero conflict because unless you're watching Game of Thrones, or watching, sorry, I'm betrayed that I've never read Game of Thrones and never will. <laughs> so unless you're reading Game of Thrones. Um, as an air quotes for the right. audience at home. For those of you watching in black and white. Yeah. You're, 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 um, you're not watching or reading to see if the hero wins. You're watching and reading to see how the hero wins. And so you, you need to have a conflict like you need to embrace the inner sadist and punish your hero as severely as you can put him to the edge and have he or she stand up and keep going that's what a good writer does but a lot of new fiction writers they're too nice they like their characters so they give their characters a break and they're nice to their characters and oh that works out oh yeah yeah he, he, you know, in the middle of the book, they have a major victory. No, 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 never do that. I once uh, was given some advice on um, sitcom writing that was along the lines of, if you're going to write a sitcom, um, establish your characters and then stick them up a tree and have them try to work out how to get down. And then while they're up there, throw rocks at them. Right. Because that's, it has to be, exactly, it has to be conflict. So if you were going to give, so what are your like, top tips for, for new writers then that come to you? Just to, just to finish up, say like three pieces of advice that, that you would give to overcome the most common mistakes. So for both fiction or nonfiction, the first, number one piece of advice that I would give is establish if this is a bucket list thing. Because if it's just a matter of getting this one story out or this one book out, then the, probably the most important piece of advice that I can give doesn't matter to you. Which is, if you're serious about writing, you got to do it every day. And no excuses, no bullshit, no I'm tired, no I'm sick. You got to do it every way, day. And if you have a shitty writing day, so be it. Just stare. It's better to have a shitty writing day and do it than to not do it. That, that's probably the most important thing to it. And I have written thousands of words that will never see the light of day. And I have stared at a computer screen for thousands of hours. I, I, no, I'm Egyptian. I'm Egyptian, so I am prone to hyperbole. So let's just go with it. For tens of thousands of hours. <laughs> and you know not written a single word and that's just the price you pay and frankly it's a great price to pay because it means that a lot of the bullshitters won't even try so that's probably the most fundamental piece of advice i can give the second piece of advice is don't be afraid to study the basics and fundamentals of writing and use them you you know if you want to create you know this out there crazy story go for it but you only have the right to do it when you know the basics if you don't know the basics all you're gonna do is create a pile of shit uh, maybe the wine is getting to me a little bit <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Rami's gone ranty <laughs> and then the third piece of advice is um, how to get feedback which to go back to yours so I think people go about feedback wrong. 
I think that what they do is is they ask their friends and family, and then they and and you know and and and, and you know Billy Billy reads a lot. You know Billy's the only guy I know who read all the Game of Thrones and all the Wheel of Time series. He knows now. Billy doesn't know shit. Let's be honest. Okay, <laughs> like. So Billy if, knows what he likes. Billy knows what he likes, right? Yeah. So if you're going to get advice, number one, don't ask 10 people for a piece of advice. Ask one person for advice. Ask them to kind of read it in a 24 to 72 hour period and give, them, give you the feedback right then and there. And be ready to have your feelings hurt. Be ready to feel like shit at the end of it, and be ready to, you know, get back to work and do some major edits for your book because it needs it. And Thus speaks a man who has had feedback from me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true. Which is great, by the way. Thank so, you. So is he, to be fair. In fact, you both have. There you go. Yeah. You both have been brutalized by me, so you, you should form a club. Yeah. <laughs> and, and on that summer note, uh, uh, I think we should wrap up. But it'd be great if you could join us here again next week. Uh, Rami to, 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 to chat again will do so that was Bottle of Red with me Justin Lee Anderson Ross Garner and Rami Habib stroke Ari Vance if you've got any comments on the show or you want to tell us what you think uh, you can get us all on Twitter I am author JLA Ross is Ross A. Garner and Rami is at Gone God World uh, which is a reference to his Paradise Law books You can also find out more about the show on bottleofred.net and please, if you enjoyed the show, subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.